Stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. I truly believe that thoughts are the greatest vehicle to change power and success in the world. Victory at all costs. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be. But without victory there is no survival. To those waiting with bated breath for that favorite media catchphrase, the U-turn, I have only one thing to say. You turn if you want to. The ladies not for turning. Success is not final. Failure is not fatal. It is the courage to continue that counts. Is a quote from Sir Winston Churchill, the inspirational Prime Minister who led Britain to victory in the Second World War. I thought the quote was apt for our guest today who is one of Australia's greatest entrepreneurs and iconic retailer, Jerry Harvey, chairman of Harvey Norman Holdings Limited. This is a special podcast. It is an opportunity to listen to one of the very best. It is also the first time we have broken our show into two parts, as we cover the whole story, from the humble beginnings to achieving success not once, but twice. From the trading of horses to leading an international business, this is a no-nonsense, straightforward conversation that we could all learn from. Hello and welcome to another episode of No Limitations, a show where we speak to elite world-class performing men and women and unlock the secrets and influences that have shaped their destinies and that you could apply to your own life. I'm your host, Greg Robinson, Managing Partner of Blenheim Partners Executive Search and Board Advisory Firm. In this episode, Part A, Jerry shares with us where it all began, the genesis and growth of Harvey Norman. We also examine leadership, motivating others, and the ability to make the big calls. So sit back and enjoy this open and incredibly wide-ranging conversation. Jerry, welcome to the show. Thank you. Jerry, everyone knows you as a serial entrepreneur, retailer, but didn't you grow up in the bush and wasn't the ambition to be a farmer? Yeah, well, I did. I, I went to school at Bathurst and I went to school at Katoomba. And I never came to the city until I went to the University of New South Wales in whatever it was, 1957. Yeah. And um, and so I'd never really been to Sydney except a few little times a holiday or something like that. So I just naturally assumed I'd be a farmer, I guess. Um, and, and on my holidays, I'd work on farms. So, you know, I'd be out there doing whatever you do on a farm. And um, so I just assumed I would be. But the problem was I didn't have any money. Yeah, right. So even though I was 17, I had enough brains to realise that if you didn't have any money, it was hard to be a farmer because, you know, you'd have to work for someone and yep. you wouldn't earn much money. So how were you ever going to make any money? And was mum and dad from, from the land or what were they? Well, my father was actually from a fairly wealthy family. He oh, never okay. really had to work much. And uh, he had hotels and couple of properties and things like that. So he, but then he went broke. Oh, really? And, and so then my mother and father were both invalid pensioners and I remember what they got. They, they used to get four pound a week each. Yeah, right. And so they had, I had two brothers, two younger brothers. So the three kids and, and we were living on eight pounds a week, which is $16 a week. Yeah. A lot of money then. Yeah. <laughs> Not really, but, 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 you know, so we, we were in a situation where our house burned down when I was about 12 and then my mother and father, whatever money they had, they'd spent it after another couple of years. Right, okay. And then they had to pull me out of school and put me in a, in a the local school, Katoomba. And, um, and so um, after the house burned down, we had to live in the garage. So we lived in the garage and I... Remember, we made the beds. We didn't just make a bed like you make a bed today. We actually built the beds. Seriously? Yeah. So, so my mother and father had a double bed in the garage and then right on, beside that there was a double-decker with my two younger brothers 
slept together in the downstairs and I was upstairs. Right, okay. And and so then we built a little thing on the side and that was where we had a copper. So I'd chop all the wood. Yeah, yeah. And the copper would boil up and you'd bale it out and put it in the bathtub and the trick was to get the first bath if you could because otherwise you're in the other bloke's dirty water. So, um, so it was pretty, you know, like I had a... Eh, it was pretty, you'd look at it today and say that's a pretty rough sort of a background, you know, but I look at back and I, I, you know, I was up till 12, I was a rich kid's yeah, son. Right. And, yeah, okay. You know, so I, I thought we were well off. And then from 12 or 14 on, I knew we were desperately poor. So, you know, I'd work on the weekends during after school, before school or whatever, rolling tennis courts or doing a bit of gardening and on the holidays I'd always work on a farm and we just had no money, nothing. So when I left school, couldn't become a farmer really. Yeah, right. And then so when I went to university, I thought, oh, well, I looked in the paper because I said to my father, I said, what do, you, what do you think I should do? He said, oh, I don't know. I said, that's a lot of help. But you would have been the first member of the family to go to uni? Yeah. Yeah. So it's a big, big thing. It was a big thing in those days. Yeah. It's not a big thing today. Everyone no. goes. Yeah, but in those it, days, big thing. Yeah, it was a big thing. So um, so I, I kept saying, well, what do you think I should do? And he said, came up with electrician. So I thought, oh, well, that's it. I'll be an electrician then. And But I didn't. So, But I looked in the paper and I thought, what do they advertise for? And I saw salesmen and accountants. There were more jobs for them in 1957 than anything else. So I thought... I might become a salesman or an accountant. I'm not a salesman, so I can't do that. I'll become an accountant. So I went to university and I thought I'll, I, and I enrolled in commerce. Yeah. So, you know, I thought I'll be an accountant. And then during the day, I'd work in, in a place at the time I worked in as a clerk with an accountant. But after about a year, I thought, I hate accountancy. And, and, yeah, so, so I thought, what am I doing here? But were you um, good with numbers? Yeah, I'm good with numbers now. I was good with numbers then, but I'm not like there's better people than me, but I'd be in the top 2 3 or 4%, I'd say. Yeah. If you add up a heap of numbers, I'd do it quicker than 98% of people. Yeah. Um, so, and I'm pretty good mentally, all that sort of thing. Um, so uh, then I saw an ad. And it had salesmen earn £30 a week. I was earning £6 a week working this job I was doing. So I thought, £30? £30 a week? So I went for an interview and it was a door-to-door salesman. I said, I'm not going to do that. And then the bloke talked to me and he said, give it a try. I said, I can't sell and it's a low job knocking on doors. And so um, I thought, oh, well, I'll give it a go. So I gave it a go and week after week I'd sell nothing. And after about six months, I thought, I'm just hopeless. Mm, pretty soul-destroying, soul isn't it? Well, you knock on a hundred doors and you get into three, if you're lucky. <laughs> That's right. And then you don't get a sale and you've worked hard all day and then you do the same thing the next day, month after month goes by and you think, but what kept me going was that there were a couple of other blokes there they were selling one every day. What were sometimes two. Vacuum cleaners and, and floor polishers. Really? Yeah. So so they'd sell them and I couldn't. So that really I wasn't real happy with myself. So I kept at it because I thought, I've got to learn how to do this. Yep. So I'd watch that bloke sell, then I'd watch the other bloke sell, and then I'd get get my patter, and then suddenly it all came together. And then I'd sell five a week, then ten a week. And then I broke the record. I sold 30 in a week. And that was 10 quid a go. So I'd made 300 quid for the week yeah, right. as opposed to my six quid payday. Yeah. Right? So in those days, the average wage was, say, £10 a week, and I was making 30 times that. As a young bloke as well. As an 18-year-old. Yeah, wow. So I thought, there's good money in this, but I hate it. I just can't. So then I figured out my university mates... I'll get them to knock on the doors, (laughs) get me the entry, and then I won't have to knock on a door. Oh, you're the closer. I'm the closer. So I'd go in then, 
And every time I'd make a sale, I'd give them a share. No knock on door, right? And just selling, so that was better. But I still didn't like it. And then I got a job after that. They, they, TV had come out and there was a place called Goodwins of Newtown and I'd heard a couple of my mates were making 100 and 200 quid a week and 300 quid a week and I thought, I'll try that, selling TVs. That'll be better fun than vacuum cleaners. So then I started to sell TVs and I did really well at that. But I, I got sick of that too. Mm -hmm. And then I really wanted to open my own business. I was about 19 or 20 and so... I did. I opened a little shop for Goodwins, the people I worked for. So I'd have this little shop and I was doing up fridges and, and, and washing machines and, you know, ones that had been traded in, we'd do them up and then sell them. And that went okay. Yeah. And then I, then I thought, no, I'll try real estate. So I tried real estate. And that was in 1960-61. And I'd sell something and it'd fall over. It was in the middle of the credit squeeze in 1961. Oh, right. So I thought, I'm going broke and I'm 21. And so uh, then this bloke that was selling the real estate also had a little thing on the side where he had an auction selling household goods. I looked at that and I thought, this bloke's going okay at that. So I saw a mate of mine, Ian Norman, I said, mate, come into business with me. We'll open up a shop and we'll sell second-hand goods. And so he said, okay. So we opened up a shop and we called it Harvey Norman on the Princess Highway at Arncliffe on the 1st of October 1961. I just turned 22. And so I didn't have any money much. So what I do... Well, you, did you self-fund the shop, Jerry, to get your... Yeah, but what I do, I, because I didn't have any money, I put an ad in the paper, wanted to buy... I'd, I'd buy the households of furniture or whatever from people. So when I go out to see you, I say, look, I can give you cash or if you wait two or three weeks, I'll get you a bit more. I'll sell it and then give you a bit more. Oh, okay, right. right? So instead of giving you £30 for your household of furniture, I might be able to get you 35 or 40 Yeah, right. And they all wanted to do that. Yep. I said, okay. So I must have had an honest face or something. So, <laughs> so I'd sell it and three or four weeks later, I'd give them their money. But it cost me no money. And then I'd, I'd buy £30 worth and sell it for £100. So I was making good money. And then I'd have an auction every Saturday with all this stuff and I'd have a heap of people come to the auction and I'd employ the auctioneer and I'd help him and my mate would help. And so suddenly we were firing. Everyone was coming to this place at Arncliffe to buy furniture or electrical. I even sold chooks, cars, whatever. You know, we are an auction, sold everything. And so it went really, it was going really well. And so then I thought, I wonder if I get into new stuff because I'd sold new TVs and fridges and all that sort of thing. So I, to one side, I put another shop there and I filled it up with furniture and electrical, new, and ran the auction on the other side. Okay. So that went off like a rocket. And I thought I'll go to America and see what's happening in America. So I, I spent six weeks in America uh, after I'd been going for about maybe a year. And, and I, I got a plane trip, cost me $200, I think it was, and I could fly to any city I liked for two weeks. And so I did that. Every day I'd be flying to a different city to go to every different retailer in that town. Yeah, yeah. And I'd try and talk to them to see where was retail going to go into the future. Yeah. So then I came back to Australia and the bloke I'd put in charge to help me look after the business, he'd stuffed it. So... <laughs> I thought, shit, I'm going broke. So then I had to work like crazy yeah. and I got it going again. And so it just went from strength to strength. And then another shop came up, a bloke called Keith Lord at the time, said to me, do you want to open a shop with me? I said, yeah, I will. And he was working with Norm Proven at the time. Oh, yeah, yeah. He and Proven were partners. Yeah. And he'd had a fallout with Proven and Proven kept the business and Keith Lord went and opened his other shop and I had Harvey Norman. Right. And so we opened a shop at Neutral Bay. And I said, I know a bloke at Neutral Bay that'll get out of the shop and we can take it over. He said, well, what will we call it? I said, oh, well, we can call it Harvey Norman or Keith Lord, I suppose. He said, I'd rather call it Keith Lord. I said, yeah, but I'd rather call it Harvey Norman. Yeah, fair enough. He said, so we're going to be partners and we can't agree first up. I said, okay, then we'll take a different name. So we ended up with Norman Ross. That's where it comes from. Norman Ross. 
So the neutral base shop opened under Norman Ross. Right. So there was Keith Lord, there was Norm Proven, there was Sydney Wide, Norman Ross, Harvey, Harvey Norman. All these different little discounters coming up all over Sydney. So it was the birth of the discount era. And, and Sydney Wide had started maybe a year before me. Um, Keith Lord had started with Proven a little bit before. And uh, Nick Scarley had started around the same time. And so all of these people were now the new people in the, in the discount world of furniture and electrical. It just grew from there. And, and after about, I think we opened in 61 and in 1972 we went public. Um, and we multiplied anyone that invested in Norman Ross at the time when it went public multiplied their money by 15 times between 1972 and 1982 when we were taken over. So we'd run a very successful and we public company. We had 42 shops where we sold out, all in New South Wales and a few in Queensland. And we were one of the biggest discounters in the state at the time. That was in between 1961 and, and 1972 up to 1982. So it was a 21-year period. In 1982, we sold out, mm. and then I thought, what am I going to do now? And I thought, oh, well, I might have a farm, or I might... And I, about a month after that, I thought, oh... I was driving along Parramatta Road, and I saw this sign-up on a building for sale or lease. I thought, I could open a shop there. So I rang up. The owner, and it was a bloke called Sid Londish, who I knew, he'd built it, I didn't know he had. And, and I said, mate, I wouldn't mind having a go at that shop. He said, do you want to buy it or lease it? I said, how much is it? He said, 3.2 million. I said, I'll buy it. What sort of shop was it, Jerry? Oh, it's just a shop. I'm still there on Parramatta Road, Auburn. So, mind you, I'm out of that shop and the big new one on the other side of the road. But I opened up there on the 1st of October... 1982, three months after I got out of Norman Ross. And so straight away, I did all these ads with John Singleton. We helped, you know, at the time, Walton's had an ad yeah. going, we're going to win you. And then I'm, I wrote an ad, we're going to beat you. And then I took it to Singo and said, have a look at this. What do you think of the ad? He said, oh, it's a bloody beauty. Years later, he said, that ad I did for you, just that work well. I said, mate, I wrote the ad. I <laughs> I showed it to you. No, you didn't. I did. I said, mate, I'm sorry. I wrote the ad. He said, oh, whatever you like. So, <laughs> so he still tells me he wrote the ad, right? He knows he didn't. But, but it's easier to let him think he did or something. I don't know. Anyway, we put it on TV, worked like crazy. And we had crowds there every, every day, every weekend. It worked like crazy. So I thought, oh, I just have one shot. This is good. And then, Jerry, can I ask, why am I coming to your shop in those days? Because are you the best value or why? Is it just, yeah, you, I know you're big on advertising. Was it just that driving me there? I think at the time I was a 42-year-old bloke and I got up there on TV and said, listen, I, I, they took me over. Uh, I didn't want to be taken over. So I've opened up a new shop and I'm going to beat the daylights out of them. Right? So people must have thought, oh, well, I'll go and have a look at it. And so they did. And and we had, you know, our business from day one just went, phew. I recall back when I'd opened 1961 Harvey Norman and we didn't have any money to advertise, but at the time there was a, a rock and roll band down at Woolamaloo, Ray Price, I think his name was. And I thought, it won't cost me much, I'll put him in the middle of the road because, you know, you've got that in the middle of the road, a bit of concrete, and I put him there, and they played the band. And that was how we did it in the first week. And everyone was stopping, and I knew you're not allowed to do it. But it didn't matter because, because all they could do was say, stop it. But everyone would go past, what the hell is a band doing playing in the middle of the road? But it was. And, and, and so everyone would stop, come in, and, you know, and the advertising cost me virtually nothing. I'd do it again tomorrow if I could get away with it. <laughs> We, the next shop I opened then was at Miranda. That went really well. Mm. So I thought I'd open another one. No, I grew up down that way. I remember going to that shop. Yeah, the one in Miranda Fair. Yeah. 
Yeah. So then we just kept opening shops. And, and within no time at all, from 1982, then in 1987, I think we had 11 shops. So I thought I'd go public again. So in 1987, we went public. Can I ask, did you need to go public or why did you want to go public? Well, I could see now that I was going to grow another big business and this time it was going to be a lot bigger than Norman Ross. And, and so I thought, if you grow a big business and you leave it to your family, they're going to fight. So I thought, if you've got a public company, just give them the shares, right? That way, they can. you've got your shares, do whatever you like. You've got your shares, do whatever you like. And it might stop the fight because every, com- every um, family I've ever come across that's made a lot of money, I've never come across one yet where the family didn't fight. And they didn't fight straight away in a lot of cases. might have taken quite a long time, but I've never come across one that it didn't fight. And so, and, and you know, over the years, I've got to know an awful lot of the wealthy people in the country, and it just happens all the time. And so, you make a lot of money, and you think to yourself, "This is not good if I'm leaving it to all my kids, and they're going to fight and hate hate each other." That was that was a bad deal. You'd be better off leaving them nothing. Yep, fair enough. But if you can somehow do it where the brightest kid kept it and looked after it, and the one that wasn't so bright lost it. Well, you know, you only you did your best. That's right. And and they would, they don't have to fight. So that's been my, one of my things. I don't want my kids to fight. So that's why I went public. So in 1987 we went public, and between 1987 and 2000 we were the fastest growing public company in Australia. If you'd invested one dollar in 1987, you turned it into a hundred dollars or even more. By the year 2000, we beat every other public company in Australia, and our share price was going through the roof. And were you a retailer or a retailer slash property play then? Both. Yeah. So all both, even from the day when I first started, I always wanted to own my own shops. Okay. So in Norman Ross days, we owned a lot of our own shops, and in Harvey Norman, every time I got a chance, I'd own my own shop. I, I kept buying and buying and buying, and at the moment, we've got three billion dollars worth of. Real estate, right? And and so you know, I'm still buying. So and people say to me, "Oh, you know, you're a retailer. You shouldn't own your properties." Like they're idiots. What's the philosophy behind it then? Well, when you own your own property, you you can control your destiny. And so even today, if I want to put new lights or a new ceiling or uh, put air conditioning. Uh, solar on the roof of the building, all these sort of things. They're my properties. I can do what I like. I go to a landlord. He doesn't want to spend it. So my properties now, I, I spend a lot of money maintaining and upgrading them. Yeah. So like we did that flagship store at Auburn yeah. and we spent millions on it. But you go into it, that's the best retail store selling electrical and computers and furniture, bedding in the world. There is no better store in the world. We get people come here from all over the world. It's been open a year now, and they'll say, we've never seen a better store than this. The next best store in Australia is another Harvey Norman (laughs) store. So, you know, and then we decided we'd do these flagship stores in the other countries. Mm -hmm. So we did one in New Zealand, in Wairo Park. Uh, We did one in in, uh, Singapore, Millennia Walk. We did one in Malaysia, in KL. We did one in Ireland. And we did one in Slovenia. And now we've done one in Croatia. So I've, been, we, I've been to your Ljubljana one. Have you? Yeah, actually have. So um, it's interesting because you how long ago were you in that Ljubljana one? Ten years. No, it's much better now because we converted that into a superstore. Oh, I didn't. Okay, so when enough. you were in it, it was a good-looking good store. Yeah. So it was a good-looking yeah. store. But now it's a super-looking store. The whole, the whole of Slovenia or the whole of Croatia, no one's got a better store than Harvey Norman in Zagreb or Ljubljana. So if you go to either of those countries and you say, what's the best-looking furniture or electrical store in this country? They'll take you to Harvey Norman. But what's the play? Why, why are you going international? In, in my sort of business, furniture and electrical, I don't know of anyone that's ever done this. And, and so I thought, well, um, uh, we'll try New Zealand first. And, and in New Zealand, we're just as big as we are in Australia. We're in every town in New Zealand, the same as we are here. And uh, we've got 40 shops over there. So 
Then we thought we'll go to Singapore, but only to Singapore so we could go into Malaysia. We'd use Singapore as the business base and then go into the growing Malaysia because Singapore's got a population, maybe it's up around 5 million now or something like that, but it was when we went there 20 years ago, maybe 3.5 million or something like that. But Malaysia was going to grow into 20, 30, 40 million and now it's 32 million people in Malaysia. So now we've got over 20 shops in Malaysia. We think we can open between 50 and 100. Uh, and, and so our view is that even though wages are fairly low in Malaysia compared to Australia, the cost of doing business is a lot less. If you've got a long-term view, I think that you could say that Malaysian wages will equal Australia's one day. Um, and, and because it's a, it's an emerging country in Asia, like you've got Hong Kong, you've got Singapore, you've got Malaysia in order, I'd say. Now, Hong Kong's getting a hiding at the moment. Uh, Singapore's a safe haven. Hong Kong's not regarded now as a safe haven. And you've got people that have got a lot of money in Hong Kong now getting it out to put it anywhere in the world. So, uh, Singapore's regarded in Asia as the safe place in Asia. Um, and, and our growth in Malaysia is now is, is enormous. It's, it's in fact, you know, like it's our strongest area. Um, and, and into the, in our latest result, I think we had 22% or something of our profit was overseas. Cause you did well in, you've done well in Ireland as well, haven't you? Well, that was another story because we went to Ireland and broke even the first two years or something. And then we thought, well, open a heap of shops. And so we then had 12 shops all of a sudden. Then 2008, nine, the global financial crisis. And then in that first year, our sales dropped 10, 20, 30%, just like that overnight. We lost $50 million in one year. Holy hell, how do we get out of Ireland? Can't get out. We've got 20-year leases. and oh, right. So we couldn't get out. So then the next year we lost another 50 million. Holy hell. And so we started then to reduce the losses, but we, we lost all up 200 million. So it's only in the last year or two that we've turned it around. Now we're making a profit there. And I've just come back from Ireland. And Ireland's GDP is twice Australia's. It's now on fire. So Ireland's now making money again. But from our point of view, a $200 million loss mm -hmm. and going to Ireland, every analyst in the country is saying, you're idiots. And they're probably right. We were idiots to do it, but we didn't know there was going to be a global financial crisis. But why did you go to Ireland as opposed to England? Well, the idea was you'd go to Ireland, then come across into Scotland and come down into England. That's the play. Yeah. And the idea was you'd go to Slovenia and go into Croatia, and then that joins on to Hungary and, and Italy, and, 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 and so we'd go into those countries. So from memory, I think we opened in Slovenia before Ireland. So we had, the, we had this global view, ambition, to grow Europe, and then to grow the UK. And looking back, what we should have done, we should have gone to Canada and not Europe and not Ireland. And if we'd gone to Canada, uh, I think we would have done a lot better with the idea of getting into the, into, into the States. Mm, right. And then you'd be in this huge, big market that would have been better. But we'd, we'd made the decision, we did it. But Kate and I often talk about we should have gone to Canada. It's not too late. We'll get there one day. So our view is that we want to be in a lot more countries as the years go by. Then people talk to me and say, mate, you just had a birthday last week. You turned 80. And I think to myself, well, they're right, but I take the view I'm going to live forever. I spoke to Rupert Murdoch about it a few years ago. I said, mate, you're over 80. And he said, my mother lived to 100. I said, so what do you think? He said, why can't I live to 100? Now, Rupert's one of my heroes now, mainly because he's lived so long, because he's, <laughs> he's 88 or something, yeah, right? Still going. And, and when I talk to him, he makes a lot of sense. He doesn't make any less sense than when I first met him when he bought Channel 10 
1970 something or 1980 or whenever it was and he was a young bloke then but he's been the most successful uh, businessman to ever come out of Australia whether you like him or not you can't dispute the fact that what he's done far exceeds what anyone else has ever done I, I mean you've got the Pratt family now trying to beat him yep trying to Build a world business is a thing that we'd like to do. Yeah, they've got two different points there, Jerry. Don't forget, um, both those people you talked about, Pratt and Murdoch, their old man started the business. Yep. You started from scratch. Yeah, so I'm ahead of both of the buggers. In, in some regard. Yeah, well, Harry Triggerboff started from scratch. That's right. And, and Frank Lowy started from scratch. So what's – can I ask you, is the driver from behind when you're waking up one day thinking, God almighty, I don't want to wind up in that garage again? It was always when you when you when you've been rich and you go poor, really poor. There's always the realization you can go back there. The interesting thing is, I don't want to go back. One and two. The more interesting thing is that it wouldn't destroy me in any way because I've thought about it and I thought I've lived there. I wasn't unhappy. Yeah. I could go back to living as a really poor person uh, because I'd eat all right. I'd have a bed to sleep in. Um, and from my point of view, when you get to 80, you realise one thing for sure. There's, there's, there's nothing more important than your health. And so you can have all the money in the world no health. You might as well be dead. Yeah, right. Now, Kerry Packer died at 68 or something like that, and he was sick quite a few years before he died. And so he would have done anything. He would have given everything away, I, I presume, mm. just to be healthy. And so I remember when he died, uh, Solomon Lou was fairly big. He was overweight. Then Solly started to exercise. He looked, I said, Solly, you're looking pretty good. Yeah, right. And he said, well, if Kerry Packard can die, so can I. Yeah, right. So I, I, I think I should look after myself. So now I've got hold of a book that a guy's written telling you how you can live to be a hundred now and maybe 150 in years to come so i'm reading this book and trying to figure out if i can get to 100 uh, because i won't get to 150 i know but but if you're a 20 or 30 year old today this bloke's suggesting that there are ways that they'll work out how you'll get to 150 then you look out in the street and you see half the people are overweight and don't exercise so don't they realise that they're going to get sick? Don't they realise that they're not going to have a long life regardless? So why do they not take care of themselves? But has this always been part of your uh, DNA to keep take care of yourself? Because you must have been working you know, from 5am in the morning to midnight every night to get your business going. Yeah, I did all that and I didn't look after myself. I smoked, I drank too much, I had a good time. <laughs> and then at about age 35 I thought I'd better wake up to myself and I did. I had a few mates of mine that never woke up to themselves, yeah, right. so they're all dead. Yeah, right. Yeah, so since age 35, I try to do enough exercise, eat, and the other thing, peace of mind. Because you, you look at people and you, and you think, why do they die early? Exercise, diet, stress, and they seem to be the three things that kill people. Mm. So why would you want any of those three? So you should then... Look at your life and think, I don't want any stress. I'm going to make sure I eat properly and I'm going to do enough exercise. Okay, but you've been just telling the audience you just lost $200 million. It must be pretty stressful. No. Really? No, no, because I, there's nothing I can do about it. So I, I, when I was about 23, I was working till about 9 o'clock one night and I blew up. And I thought, what the hell are you doing? So I went home and I didn't go to work the next day and I had a good think about it and I said to myself, that's the last time you will ever do that. You will never get agitated again in your life, okay? So I've concentrated on never getting agitated over anything. Now, I haven't won this battle 100%, but I've won it better than most people, I can tell you. So it doesn't matter what happens. I just say, oh, there's nothing I can do about it and I'm not going to get agitated, so I don't. You keep yourself in the moment, do you? Well, by getting agitated, it, it, it achieves zero. And you can't make any decisions when you're like that. 
So the trick is, I think, you know, don't ever raise your voice if you can help it. So the minute you raise your voice, you've lost control. So you work for people over the years and you hear them go off. Yep. And you look at them and think, friggin' idiot, right? And then he starts making decisions or she makes decisions when they're going off. And then they regret it the next day, mostly. So it achieved nothing except creating a problem. So the, the golden rule is those three things. And, and, and so... So how do you, for all those people listening out there, so we've got entrepreneurs and business people, how do you make your decisions, Jerry? Because you've made some big... You, you place some, some big, good ones and bad ones, eh? Absolutely. But you've yeah. placed some big bets. Yeah, I do. I used to do it mostly on my own. Nowadays, I tend not to do that. Whenever I come up with some silly or good idea, I generally talk to two or three people around me. The one I talk to most, Kate, because, you know, like when she first started to work for me, she was 26. And after about three months, I thought, what have I got here? This, she's smarter than me. This is good. Better marry her, right? So, um, and at the time, I was going out with another girl. So I'd take them both to lunch <laughs> and and I'd be looking there thinking, I'm going out with you, but I'd rather be you. So I had to make a few decisions. I would start to go out with Kate and then she just got better at her job as the years go by. And You're not supposed to take the work home with you. No, but we do. And, and so we might wake up in the morning and start talking about work or 10 or 11 o'clock at night talking about work or something. And sometimes she might say to me, stop it. I say, oh, okay, tomorrow morning. I mean, I, my brain's running all the time, but so is hers. Um, in fact, I think hers runs faster than mine. But we're both very ambitious and we both want to achieve things. We're not going to work to make money. We're going to work to grow something, build something, sell something and be better at it than the other guy. And that's a, that's a motivating thing. And then if you make money, well, that's great. But uh, realistically, if you're worth $100 million, why would you want to be worth a billion? I mean, there's no, you can't live any better. So, um, and you can't live much better if you've got 10 million than if you've got 100. It doesn't make much difference. So you, you see how most people live today in nice houses. They, you walk into someone's house and it costs a million dollars, but it's, yours is 10 million, but it's a million dollar house. It's pretty good. You know, it's got the latest kitchen, the latest bathroom, a nice bed, nice big flat screen TV. Everything's there. It's pretty good. We live in a pretty good, good place, most of us. It's all about achievement. Why are we going overseas? Why are we trying to build the Harvey Norman business? Because because we want to be better than anyone else. Always been competitive, have you? Yep. It doesn't matter what it is, I'm competitive. But I'm married to a woman that's as competitive as me. So, like, she started um, Women in League. And since she started all of that, you know, she's been involved in all these other sports with women. And you, it's amazing now when you look out there and you, you, you look at all these sports where women are involved and she's been the pioneer in that I mean I to my way I think I think she's done more for women than than any other person I can think of ever because she hasn't been out there as a suffragette and throwing herself in chains she's getting hold of sport and using sport as the vehicle to promote and develop women so we've just got that movie at the moment called Ride Like a Girl yes and Kate was the seed person. That wouldn't have got off the ground without her. Oh, is that right? Yeah. So she put the initial money in. Rachel Griffiths, when she gets up to introduce the film, she says, I've got to pay particular thanks to Katie Page because this film would never have been... Now, that film looks like it'll be the, the top film for the year. But she did that not to make money out of the film. She did it because... The girl was a jockey, she'd won a Melbourne Cup and she figured if they made a film about that, it would give an awful lot of women, and young girls particularly, something to, to strive for and that sort of thing. It'd be good for them. And you can see what's happened. Like I watched the State of Origin women's football game the year before, the last year was at North Sydney this year. And... And I rang Kate because she was overseas. I said, I've watched that. Those girls are better than I thought they'd be. And then this year we went 
to North Sydney and watched it. And I said, you know something? I mean, three, four, five years, these girls are going to get twice as good as they are now. And, and so uh, I never saw that. 20 years ago, if you'd said to me, you could go and watch a girls' game of football, I'd say, oh, I'll give it a miss, thanks, mate. But now you say, holy hell. And then she's promoted the Muslim girls in the AFL, Simona in the, in the racing cars, and it goes on and on from sport to sport. So now, even with your, all your announcers on, on, on TV and all that sort of thing, how much better it is by having a mixture of male and female. So you look at that now and you think, wow, that took us a long time to sort of figure that it works better when you involve the females. So in racing, she started the whole group with Magic Millions. We've developed that from a company that was in receivership when we bought it 20 years ago. It's now the top-selling auction house for horses in, in the Southern Hemisphere. So English run second and New Zealand run third. But in those days, we ran a bad last. Um, so to develop that over that period of time, we didn't do it overnight. It's taken 21 years. But we've involved the women. With the, she brought in the women's bonuses and all that sort of thing. So that whole thing now on the Gold Coast, people come to that and talk about it all over the world. That's right. And so, you know, I go to Kentucky and I go to the horse sale there and I talk to the people that are selling horses there and buying horses and they say they don't do it like you do it. And I said, but, you know, this is America. This is the land of promotions and you should be a mile ahead of us. Your circa, this horse sale in Kentucky, circa 1935. Might be 45 or 55, but it's, you're so far out of date it doesn't matter. Like the bid spotters are 70 and they stand there and they are not bidders. You know, it's pathetic. And, you know, so, but, but at Magic Millions... We make it a theatre. If you're there, the bid spotters are there and they've got to... Like, that developed over the years. Might have been eight or nine years ago, there was a girl standing up in the box next to me and she was taking bids. And I said, well, you're very good. I said, you should be down there on the front. They won't put me there. I said, ah. I said, well, I'll talk to them. So I went down and I saw the guy running at Vin Cox at the time. I said, Vin... There's a girl up there, give her a go down the front. He said, no, I don't want to. I said, oh, okay. So I thought, no, I don't want to tell him what to do. So I then went around, saw a lot of my mates, and they went back to him and said, gee, there's a girl up there, she's very good. So I went back down the next day and I said, mate, I've had a lot of people coming to tell me how good this girl is. And so have I, he said. I said, oh, that's interesting. So I said, maybe we'll give her a go. Yeah, okay. So he gave her a go for an hour. Then he put her back up. I said, gee, you got rid of her quick. Yeah, she had a go. <laughs> I said, okay. So then I got a whole heap of books to go back. Get that girl back. Get the girl back. Right? <laughs> so then when the girl came back, and then, then he's accepted, she's good. Right? And, and I said, you've now got her. Now the blokes are trying really hard because they don't want the girl to beat them. So now... We've got the best bid spotters in the world. And they're up there in a theatre. And so what I wanted at the horse sale is to make sure we've got theatre. So people love it. They get excited. And, and they might buy a horse where they might not have bought a horse. And being an old auctioneer from way back, I know that, you know, you can whip people up to buy things and get them emotional. So if you can bring up emotions into people, they'll do all sorts of things. You know, that horse sale of Magic Millions has been a huge success, huge success. And from our point of view, we just look at it and say, gee, isn't that wonderful? We took something from nothing to being the number one in the country. And it's not selling fridges, it's selling horses. So, and then, so over the years, we've got all these. You're still creating theatre, isn't it? You had to create theatre in that person's home to sell the vacuum cleaner. Yeah, all those sort of things. So you're using a lot of the same business principles, if you mm. like. And so. You know, you often wonder. So years ago, when David Jones was selling for a dollar, I said, oh, I'll buy David Jones for you. And she still tells me, you know, you never bought David Jones. So department stores have been run fairly well overseas and still make money. In Australia, the, everyone says department stores, my and David Jones are finished. She doesn't think they are, and neither do I. 
So the problem is that they're not being run the way they should be. We get on to business now and we start talking about boards of directors yep. and public companies. Yep. And, 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 you've so few, and you've got a few of you there. I've got a there. fair few views and, 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 you know, when I express that view, I get quite a lot of CEOs and chairmen and things from public companies ring me on the quiet and say, mate, I agree with everything you say. I can't say it. Publicly. Publicly. Yep. Yeah, so my view is, I say, why would you have a board that none of the people on the board are retailers and they run a retail company and none of them are, but they tick all the boxes because they're independent and chairman and all this sort of thing. And we don't because we've got retailers on our board and we don't tick those boxes and we're silly and they're smart. There is no logic to this. So we're constantly attacked by the super funds in Australia. A lot of them won't buy shares in Harvey Norman because we haven't got an independent chairman. Uh, I'm married to the CEO and we haven't got another woman on the board and um, and we've got too many people on the board that are not independent. Yeah. So I said, but that system works. The other one doesn't. So you want me to tick the boxes and, and then go broke. I'm not going to take any notice of you. Sorry. And But then the super fund comes in and says, well, I understand where you're coming from. And I said, but under our rules, we still can't buy you. I said, oh, okay, well, that's fine. I can't do anything about you being stupid. Who's driving the rules there? Well, it's, it's the, the board of the super fund makes all the rules. And then the guy that comes to see me is mostly, you know, high up, but not part of the board I necessarily. I don't want a best return if I'm investing my money into a super fund and if I've got Jerry looking after money, I'll be a bit happier than someone who's got no experience in, in the game. We own 55% of the company. We work a day and night. So you, then they, they desperately want to get rid of me as the chairman and they'll pay someone 500 grand a year to be the chairman that's never been in retail and he'll run a meeting as good as me. There won't be any difference to that, but he won't have a clue. I know every shop we've got. I know all our people. I know retail backwards. And I mean, like, for me, for me to say I'll put you in and pay you five hundred grand, it makes no sense. I think I get seven hundred and fifty grand a year or something, and I run the business with Kate, and I'm the chairman. Why would I waste money putting another five hundred grand bloke in? But the super funds will be happy. They'll say that's a good idea. So the proxy guys and the proxy advisors. So the proxy advisor gets out there. He's got to make a dollar, right? So he gets out there and runs runs it so he can make a dollar, not necessarily for any other reason. And so I think to myself, why do we have proxy advisors? And then we get on to short sellers. And I say, why do we have short sellers? If I had my way, I would be in short selling. It, it creates criminals. And, and you can say that short selling has advantages, and I agree with some of those advantages, but the disadvantages far outweigh it. So you've got situations where you'll have an offshore entity that will write a note on a company, a report, out of Singapore. Then that we followed out up with one out of Europe and one out of um, um, America, and they're all in cahoots, and they built that company, share price halves, and, and, and then they might come in and buy, and then it goes back up again, and they've made a killing, and they don't go to jail. That's right. And someone says, that's not a criminal activity. Well, if it's not, what is it? But it's perfectly legal to do that sort of thing, and you can't chase them. So if you've got the, the regulators here in Australia, they, they say, well, well, I don't know what to do. You know, like that, we, the bloke comes out of some other country. What do you want me to do? I don't know, send a hitman over there. I don't know what you're going to do. Can't let this sort of thing happen. So the only way to, to stop it is to, to get rid of short sellers. But no one in the financial industry wants to do that. No way, no way. They, want to, they, they say, no, 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 they're wonderful. Then all the super funds lend them the, the shares. They make extra money on that. And so they're making extra money. So don't get rid of them. They're a cash cow. Anyway, so they, they won't get rid of them, I'm pretty sure, but that doesn't stop me saying they should. You know, I have different views to a lot of other people in business. Do you have different views or do you actually prepare to say them? Well, I haven't got different views to people that are, do what I do. 
So if I run across a, another individual that built a company or has a major share even in a, in a big company, they never disagree with me. Those people are all on my side. I've never met one that's not. And the trouble with social media, now you've got mad effing witches. Have you heard of them? I heard a little bit about them, yes. And, and the other one's sleeping giants. Yeah. So they go out there as troublemakers. They, they're out there trying to just build their image. And, but they're destroyers. They do damage and, and they don't contribute anything. But it's like, why, have I, why can't I encourage? Why can't I salute people that do a good job? Why do I want to destroy them? So if they had their way, they'd try to destroy me and anyone like me. I, I couldn't think of anyone like me they wouldn't, whether it's Kerry Stokes or Rupert Murdoch or Frank Lowy. It wouldn't matter any of us. They'd, they'd go out of their way to try and destroy us. And here I am thinking, well, the blokes that have, that have built businesses and made a great success and employed a lot of people and contributed to the growth of of this country, you should be applauding them rather than trying to destroy them. So what what is their motivation for doing this? You can only guess at it and, and it makes no sense. But it does give them a platform. It gives them a voice. And unfortunately, a lot of people take notice. And, and, and you know, with a fair number of those people, you can sit down and talk to them and say, just... Look at this from the other side. And then they, oh, yeah, okay, an hour later. And then you think, oh, shit, I don't want to go through this with everyone I know, you know, about there's another side to the story. From my point of view, building a business, uh, growing something, making something, employing a lot of people, having a, a company where people love to work for you. I had a guy bring me today and he's worked for two other companies that I know and he knows. He said, I want to work for you for less money. He said, because everyone I talk to says, Harvey Norman's a better company to work for.